On the second Friday of every month, Malaku Balai steps on stage at Fendika, the legendary jazz club he runs in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And he welcomes guests to Ethio Color Night. That's when three generations of local musicians come together to play. Malaku does the introduction once in Amharic and again in English. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Yeah? I see. So I hope you enjoy a taste of jazz. And of course, you'll see funky Ethio color influence. Thank you. Enjoy. Welcome to a special edition of To the Best of Our Knowledge, the second episode of Ideas from Africa. I'm Anne Strangechamps. And I'm Steve Paulson. Fendica is a small club tucked behind a green corrugated metal wall. The audience and musicians are packed together in a tiny space. I was actually sitting on the floor just a few feet from the band. They're playing a mix of modern and traditional Ethiopian instruments. There's a bass and flute, an assortment of drums, also a masenko, a kind of violin that has just one string, and a krar, a handheld wooden lyre. And the music? It sounds like this. Today, we're talking about how music crosses boundaries between traditional and modern, local and global, political and personal. Take jazz, a music born out of forced migration and enslavement. The usual origin story begins in New Orleans, where various musical cultures converged and eventually morphed into something we now think of as jazz, which then got exported around the world. But today, we'll unpack an alternate counter-history of jazz, one which begins right here in Africa and then crisscrosses the planet, following the movements of people and empires, from colonial powers to grassroots revolutionaries to contemporary artists all over the diaspora. This history of jazz is like the music itself, fluid, improvisatory, working both within and against boundaries. Tracing this global movement of jazz, you can hear how both African and African-American music have shaped the sound of the world today. Two nights later, across town, we caught another jazz show with an artist who's a household name in Ethiopia, Maclete Hattero. She is herself an example of boundary crossings. She was born in Addis Ababa, but she's lived in the U.S. since she was two. The night we saw her, she was playing a sold-out show broadcast on TV to five million people. That night, my band and I performed at Tobia Poetic Jazz. It happens the second Wednesday of every month at the Ras Hotel in Addis Ababa, and it sells out every single time. A thousand people get there three hours early, wait in lines that stretch around the block to hear jazz and poetry. That, to me, is just 
an amazing fact. The first time I went to Ethiopia to perform, it was just me and a guitar, and I was tentative. I had founded at the time a collective of Ethiopian diaspora artists. My idea was we have this experience of our version of Ethiopia as diaspora young people having been filtered through the lives and experiences of our parents. Will they accept me? Will there be a space for me here? to create our own relationships to the culture. We just had to go, and we had to go again and again. So that was that experience, that very, very first experience. That's when the love seed began, (laughs) let's say. But... When you get up on a stage, you have to be so confident in yourself. It has to be a declaration. Your songs have to be a declaration. And I didn't know that yet. My video for the song Chemicum came out and my TED Talk came out that same year. Both of those things really went viral in Ethiopia. And after that time, it was just an open door. The circle of love is just so palpable and real. I was just so grateful for, just so, so, so grateful for. So with musical roots on both continents, is McLeod's music American, African-American, African, or all of the above? I feel like I'm making diaspora music, music influenced by migration and by this life that I've had being from Ethiopia and growing up all over the States. And so I feel like I'm making hyphenated music always. In the U.S., like, it's something you have to struggle for. But actually, when you go back to Ethiopia, it's like, oh, they get it. They totally, totally get it. Wait, what do you mean they get what it's like? They get the hyphenated identity. I mean, and if you think about it, like the diaspora has become so big that everybody has a cousin who lives in Europe or or the U.S. It's a part of having a relationship with a global world. And I feel like, you know, we're going through so much in the U.S. right now. It's a time that really can leave your heart broken and your fire burning. Well, I've been really struck by the continual migration of music back and forth, in particular between America and Africa. And it just feels like you can really see that movement in Ethiopian jazz. There's a great story from Mulatu Astatke, the creator of Ethio Jazz. You know, he went to Berklee College of Music. He was the first African to go to the Berklee College of Music. Hmm. He spent a lot of time in New York, and he describes being incredibly inspired by the Latin jazz that was created in New York at that time, and the Cuban musicians and the Puerto Rican musicians who were transforming jazz. And he was like, oh, yeah, I can do that, too, with my tradition. And so then he went back to Ethiopia, 
and he created Ethio Jazz in Addis Ababa. And then Ethio Jazz becomes this international phenomenon. And the Ethio Jazz that I perform is really about that migration from Ethiopia back to the States and what that says. So the circle is continual. And you can imagine that the circle can keep going. Like, this is only, what, round three in the circle? <laughs> right. What's round 10 sound like? That's what right, I want to know. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I imagine for a lot of our listeners are probably not at all familiar with Ethiopian jazz. Yeah, so when you talk about what Ethio jazz is, you would really be talking about the pentatonic scale systems. And the way that Mulatwastatki described it to me, he said his contribution to Ethio jazz was finding a way for the five-tone pentatonic scale to sit next to the 12-tone Western diatonic scales. How does that make music sound different? Well, a scale is like a universe. <laughs> I love that. Which is very abstract, I know. No, it's I know. beautiful. It's like when you walk into a room and the room has a certain quality of light, right? And it's like, oh, this is the way this room makes me feel because the light kind of looks like this. And I can smell that somebody burned some incense in here. It's like five notes, but the five notes have a color and a feeling, a world that you can walk into. He's been important to you, right? An inspiration, a mentor. I met Gashmula Twastatke in 2011. It was this very important musical moment for me. He came to my show, and afterwards he took me aside and he said, Hey, you know, you don't have to play Ethio Jazz like we played it 50 years ago. He said, What's your contribution? He said, only you can find that and don't do it like anybody else. And it was a very inspiring moment. Sounds a little intimidating, too. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I didn't know what to do with that conversation for years. And finally, I decided to really ground the songs in Ethiopian rhythms. So if it's... The song, You Are My Luck, that was based in a Guraginya rhythm. Whatever else is going on in the song, if people can dance the Guraginya dance to that song, I have succeeded. <laughs> the other song, well, there are a couple of others I wanted to ask you about, but you know the song, This Was Made Here. That's so interesting. It's never clear where here is. Is it Africa? Is it America? I think it's both. For you, where is here? The first thing I'll answer that with is a story. So when I was growing up, my mom 
she would always refer to Ethiopia as back home. She'd be like, oh, back home it's like this, or back home we do this. And she just often would never even say the name of our country, Ethiopia. She would just say back home. And then the first time I went to Ethiopia with her, she started referring to the U.S. as back home. I was just so struck. But also the song This Was Made Here, it's my refugee story. It's the story of the longing for that home space. I wanted to make music so Ethiopian and so American that it could only have been made here in the U.S. in this period of time when the diaspora had grown to this particular size where we could claim a cultural space, a sense of being a deep and important part of communities in Seattle and Oakland and L.A. and Dallas and Brooklyn. This is a music of a specific time and place, which is hyphenated America. You're partly describing the diaspora almost as a nation, a country of its own. Well, I don't think it's a country of its own. It can't be, but it is a mindset. It is a specific state of mind. I actually love the word diaspora because it comes from a Greek word that means the scattering of seeds. Oh, I didn't know that. And you can hear it in the word spore. Yeah. You know? In your mind, you can picture a dandelion and somebody blowing a dandelion. And, and there you go. That's what it means. To me, your most haunting song is Supernova, which mm. begins and ends with the question. Where did you come from? Yes. And, you know, your answer from the sky, from a supernova, which is another kind of diaspora. That we all belong to. I recently heard that there are the remnants of a thousand supernovas inside all of us. If we want to understand our connections to anything, soil (laughs) or a tree or a building or anything, you can say, well, we came from the same supernova. And this is what I want people to feel when they walk away from my concert, that the world is alive with linkages between things that can connect us and sink into a wholeness, a wholeness, a wholeness. I mean, that's why I listen to music, Mm -hmm. because I want to feel whole, and music lets me do that. And I want to give that to other people in every song. Where did you grow those bones? Midnight is me. 
reflection Maclead Hadero is an Ethiopian-American jazz artist and co-founder of The Nile Project. Her most recent album is the award-winning When the People Move, The Music Moves Too. That feeling that Maclead talks about of being strengthened by connections across boundaries, that is precisely what the South African system of apartheid was designed to prevent even in music. How jazz became part of the anti-apartheid movement, next. It's to the best of our knowledge. From Wisconsin Public Radio. And PRX. This is the second episode of our new series, Ideas from Africa. And we've been talking about how jazz and other popular music grew out of the experience of slavery and forced migration. And maybe because of that, has often expressed ideas about freedom. I don't know how it happened. I guess it's word of mouth. Something like R&B music. You know, I was... Back then, it was something you couldn't get access to easily. So people used to have these little informal networks where you could get Earth, Indian Fire records or Michael Jackson or whatever. You couldn't get the stuff on the radio. I remember there was one program which was allowed on the radio which played black music from America. Otherwise, the state told you what you could listen to. And most of what was on the radio was stuff that we would not identify with as black youth. So just getting access to music from outside, I guess because they imposed restrictions on it, it suddenly became desirable. This is historian Valmont Lane. We met him at a conference at the University of Addis Ababa. And after we had lunch in the cafeteria, we sat down and asked him about his own musical history. And he says when he was growing up, black music, wherever it came from, could be dangerous. It was the soundtrack for his generation's revolution. I grew up in Cape Town, in District 6 initially, and then on what's called the Cape Flats, which was the outline townships to which people had been banished. I'm designated as colored under the old system, which means that I'm a minority within a black majority. I was born in 1966, which was also the year that the South African apartheid state declared District 6 a white area. I'm of a generation that became radicalized because of it, and eventually the generation that drove apartheid out. I often think of images of other places where war is happening in a sense, like Palestine and so on, where buildings, where kids grow up or play cowboys and crooks among broken buildings. That's my memory of the place. When I was 10 years old, a 1976 riots happened and I remember kids were being shot and there was a lot of violence. From the window of our apartments, I could see the teenagers of the time 
learning to make petrol bombs and then running out to go and find cops to throw it at. Our band started because some of the kids who could play the guitar and sing decided we need to write songs that speak about what's happening. So we would take a famous song by Elvis Presley, for example. j rock became Mandela's rock, so <laughs> let's rock around the clock, everybody, let's march to Mandela's cell. Or, it's now or never. It's now or never. Give us our rights. Come home, we'll fight forever. Kiss me, my Release Mandela, our great leader. I was learning to play the guitar in the early 80s, and by 1985, I was a soloist. I performed some original stuff. What you, what you? A song that was recently revived, it also a tribute to Mandela, called Nelson the Island, which became one of the signatures of our band. Oh, Nelson, oh, Nelson. I guess I was also a teenager, so I was asking questions naturally, but as a young person, I'm also beginning to realize that there's a whole body of experience of music that I have no access to because it's being forced into exile. Jazz, remember the vision of apartheid is to ruralize black life. Apartheid created this idea that black people can only ever be tribal. And so they need to live in their tribal homelands. If you've got black people, they have no business being in cities unless they're there to work on a temporary basis. So jazz creates all kinds of false hope for black people. They should not be aspiring to living in cities or being sophisticated or studying mathematics or all kinds of other things. South African jazz was literally uprooted from South Africa and it landed in New York, it landed in London, in Zurich, in other places. The 1976 generation is, of course, the generation of people like Cyril Ramaphosa, who is now the president of South Africa. The generation after that, which is my generation, I guess, uh, is the explosion that happened around 1985. The kids who were out on the streets had already internalized what black consciousness was teaching. So they were radicalized in cultural terms. We articulated our anger in Afrikaans. Street Afrikaans, not the Afrikaans of the educated white elite, but of the black majority.
Remember in 1976, kids were rejecting Afrikaans. In 1985, kids, I guess an analogy is with the queer movement, where being queer was a, an insult, and then later on it became a term of mobilization. Afrikaans became a language of mobilization. And for me, that was amazing. The Genuines, this punk group, they had an album called Guma. Guma music, Guma, is a word that has been attached to the music of the slaves at the Cape. And Cape Town is unique because it is one of the few places on the African continent where slaves were being imported from other places. So unlike the rest of the continent where slaves are being exported to the United States, to the Americas, Cape Town was importing slaves and building an economy based on slavery. So Guma is the music of the colored people. And when I listen to the genuines, this punk group, they take in Guma music and the sensibilities. So often it's intangible sensibilities. It's in language, it's in mannerisms, in the peculiar local expression. And they're making an argument for Guma music as part of a broader South African vision. So they're saying, this is not something that is only applicable to colored people. This is something with which we can have a much broader global canvas. As long as you're speaking within your community with a sense of integrity, you can do anything with any kind of music. The idea of being able to party to music that was being made by people in our own community, in the language that we spoke, I think that more than anything inspired me to take part in the struggle. Velmont Lane is a former curator at the District 6 Museum, and he's a next-generation fellow at the Center for Humanities Research at the University of the Western Cape. Under apartheid, there was only one kind of music black musicians were supposed to make, traditional, meaning tribal or at least a white conception of what tribal was. Apartheid forced a generation of jazz artists out of South Africa and into clubs in Europe and the U.S. Gwen Ansell is a writer and jazz scholar who's been documenting the South African jazz scene ever since she first encountered it in the late 60s. She became friends with and personally interviewed many of the major players, both those who left and those who stayed. A lovely story is that of the multi-instrumentalist Ndiko Kaba. He was doing a recording session with a band for the South African Broadcasting Corporation, and the producer said to the piano player, I don't want you doing anything else, just stay on that one note, go ting, 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 ting. Ndiko said, that was the point when I realized I could no longer stay with this degenerate artistry. didn't get out until a few years later, but that was when his decision was made. All kinds of hideous and identity-erasing horrors were perpetrated on them when they performed. There are fairly famous cases of 
black musicians being forced to perform behind a screen, while a white musician mimed their instrumentalism in front of that screen. If you can imagine the psychological impact of erasure that that had on black musicians, it is, looking back on it, truly horrifying. You call it a form of symbolic annihilation. It is indeed. Gwen, when did you start listening to jazz in South Africa? Well, my history is slightly weird when I'm not South African by birth. And I started listening to South African jazz in Oxford, where I was at university. I think the first black South African jazz I ever heard was a combo with, at the front, Dudu Pukwana, the saxophonist, and Mongezi Feza, the trumpeter. Those people would have been titans wherever they were born and wherever they were making music. Now, those were some of the original members of the Blue Notes, weren't they? They were indeed, yes. From what I've read, they kind of set Europe on fire. Oh, very much so. Somebody you interviewed said it was it was because they were so comfortable in the free space. I love that idea of the music itself, free jazz, providing this kind of free, liberatory space. Well, let me tell you about what another South African musician who worked on the free scene in Europe, a percussionist called Tebe Lepera, said when I interviewed him. He basically said, you know this stuff of sitting around in a circle and just improvising? He said, we've been doing that back home in our communities for generations. It was nothing new to me. These European musicians seemed to think it was some big deal, but it was nothing new to me. Those years, I think that those are the years that people have called the dead years. There's this story that jazz was just shut down in South Africa. Yes, and I contest that very, very strongly. Not everyone left the country. It was very much an underground and risky enterprise. I can't count the number of young musicians who talked to me about going to so-and-so's place, and so-and-so's place would be either a formal or an informal drinking spot where musicians played, where older musicians mentored younger musicians. Winston Mankunku is a very good example of that. Tell us his story. Okay, Winston Mankunku Ngozi was born in the Western Cape in a, a small community called Retreat. He went off to do his initiation, as all young men in the Kosa-speaking community did. And as was told to me, when you came back from that, you'd either form a band or you'd form a sports team. Winston Mankunku's most famous recording is a recording called Yagalinkomo, The Bellowing Bull, which was a nice, rural, tribal-sounding title that didn't upset the censors. But Mankunku himself said to me that after shows, people would come up to him and they'd say, don't worry, bro Winnie, we know what you're singing about. This song, he said, was for the black man's pain. So the bellowing bull was the bull being led to slaughter. For many South African horn men, the horn was an extension of their human voice anyway. It wasn't that they saw singing and playing as two completely separate things. And in the parts where Mankunku features, there is this astounding 
roaring, anguished cry from his saxophone. I know that became one of the most important and transformational albums of South African jazz. Winston Mankuku himself, I think, never got paid for it. He did eventually get some small grudging payments, but I think we have to make it very clear the way the white studios were run. Black musicians came in at night, they were given one take, and I know that on one of the tunes on one of the albums that the group made at that time, the pianist Ibrahim Khalil Shihab still can't bear to listen to one of those numbers because there was an error and he wanted the time to go back over it and deal with it. And the engineer said, no, you know, your time's up. And basically the engineers would say really dismissive things like, I want to get home, finish up, hurry up now, why are you wasting time? Again, no dignity, no recognition of their creativity as artists. That was what they lived with. Wow. Was it dangerous even to go to a recording session? I mean, it would have been after curfew. You'd probably be okay if you arrived while it was still light. It was going home that was when you were likely to be picked on and hassled. This is part of the political assertiveness of South African jazz, is it's an occupation at night when black people are supposed to be imprisoned in their homes and their townships. But if alongside that you were seen to be engaged in politics or your music sounded too suspicious, or you actually were engaged in politics because many South African jazz musicians very courageously led double lives and actually assisted the struggle, then, of course, it became even more dangerous. Although the most famous musical martyr is not, in fact, a jazz musician, but a choral musician, Vuyusile Mini, who actually sang his own compositions as he walked to the gallows. But yes, it was not a safe life. Wow. It is so inspiring that people were able to create music of the beauty of, let's say, Yakalenkomo under those conditions. You know, that often it seems to me the underlying assumption is that jazz started in America and then people in other countries grafted on some of their own cultures, musical ideas. But I'm not sure that that's exactly right, because I think there are plenty of people who would say, no, jazz is African. I, look, I don't, I don't think that is right. I don't think that is right. Certainly when I have interviewed South African musicians about what they heard and identified with when they heard early American imported records, the constant refrain is it sounded a little bit like our music here. Jazz as it's mainstream recognized is certainly an American phenomenon because it marks the coming together of those influences with the Western influences, the Western instruments. But that's not where it started. Jazz is an African music. It's a music that came from Africa, went to America, and in the case of South Africa, came back to Africa again. Writer and jazz scholar Gwen Ansell talking from her home in Johannesburg. She wrote a landmark history of jazz under apartheid called Soweto Blues. And if you want to hear more of those classic tracks or hear what younger jazz artists are doing in South Africa today, we made a playlist for you. 
It's on our website, ttbook.org. Coming up, how African music shaped the sound of music around the whole world. It's to the best of our knowledge from Wisconsin Public Radio and PRX. If you want to unpack the complete history of African musical migration, you have to go way back to the beginning of European colonization. And if you're thinking, we'll never know what that sounded like, that's not entirely true, as musicologist Ron Rodano recently discovered. The story begins around the turn of the century. Germany is occupying portions of Africa, mining and extracting rubber, diamonds, gold, and also music. It's a kind of crazy story. Around 1900 in Berlin, a multidisciplinary group of scientists were intrigued by the possibility of recording African music as it was practiced. And what's in large part driving this is a presupposition that in Africa, one can find the origins of being. At that same moment, we also see new opportunities of collecting music, of recording. Those who were in charge weren't really the ones who went to Africa, but they enlisted missionaries who were traveling to Africa, participants in the military, ethnologists. These recordings then find their way to the laboratories in Berlin. There was the sense that one could measure humanity and mismeasure humanity and try to make judgments about African peculiarity or inferiority or the nature of intelligence. There are some indications that musicians sometimes embrace the possibility of performing. There are other indications where musicians are horrified by this when they realize what had happened, that their voice ended up in a box, that their spirit was stolen, a sense that they lost something that was going to be taken away and brought to Europe. certainly consistent with the atrocities that they were they were experiencing at the time in some places. The tradition of primitivism begins to emerge in Europe around this time. This fascination with African naturalness and savagery and all the kinds of fantasies that begin to be imposed on on Africa suggests that these are not recordings of African music at all. They're a modernist creation of Europe, but they are also not nothing. The fact that we can actually hear musical practices from this time. These recordings 
are somewhere in between the worlds of Europe and Africa. In a way, it's, I don't want to overly mystify it, but I'm not sure what they are. They seem to be in a kind of nether region that way. Ron Rodano has been rewriting the history of race and black music for decades. As a fellow at the American Academy in Berlin and at the Institute for Research in the Humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, he says that today we are all African when we listen. For example, scroll through a list of top hits right now, and you'll be hard-pressed to find a song that is not infused with musical sounds and ideas that originated in Africa. So how did that happen? It all goes back to the transatlantic slave trade. When one looks at musical life of the 20th century, one can hear in it a deep hue of blackness, we can call it, of Africanity. The sense of pulse, a very strong pulse. Is that another word for beat? Yeah. It becomes very much a character of African-American music as it's developing in the 19th century. But what I think is equally important is the way in which pulse or beat becomes racialized because of an order of discourse that equates blackness with rhythm. But there's such a deep irony here because you're talking about traditions in the United States that go back to slavery. Yeah. You're talking about black musicians who were subjugated, and yet somehow they became the purveyors of what became the dominant form of music today. I think that the idea of black music, or as it was characterized at the time as Negro music, comes into being when slaves begin to make money playing music in the 1840s and 1850s there's a kind of explosion of references to what was called Negro music. There's this new kind of peculiar music that is being performed by slaves who are being hired out by their owners. Sometimes they'd actually earn a little bit of profit from that as well. You're saying the slave owners valued the musicality Mm. of their enslaved people. They certainly did. In fact, many slave musicians were performing for white social entertainment. There was a recognition that some slaves were very talented, and they, in turn, learned how to perform for white mastery. But how does that square with the overall ideology that the slaves were inferior human beings? Yeah, it is weird, isn't it? My take on it is that the performance of music created a property. The slave as a property had been miraculously creating a property of its own. So it was kind of the property of a property. So the music becomes something else that the slave owner can own. Yeah. So slave music becomes a very powerful force of cultural production among 
African-Americans at the late stages of the antebellum period. So how does this fit in with how white people thought about blackness? There's a sense that what makes black music unique at this moment is a racial condition of black people, namely that they are inherently audible, that one can hear a naturalness resonating forth from the bodies. It shows up remarkably in depictions of the ways in which slaves just seem to give off sound, (laughs) remarkable sound, a wondrous sound. And this identifies a kind of exceptionalism, a black exceptionalism, that only a black body is able to produce sound in this way, which is a mark of inferiority at the same time is a mark of a kind of supernatural power too. So I tend to think of black music not really as music at all, but as a kind of double value. It's both inferior and superior to the category of music that we tend to understand as a European convention. And yet, going back to this notion that there's this deep contradiction here, again, this music that is born out of subjugation, out of slavery, comes to dominate global pop music. Mm -hmm. Once it gets into the commercial markets, it really takes off. When life seems full of clouds, African-Americans were seen as the entertainment class. The go-to musicians, often or increasingly so, were African-Americans. As black music enters into recording, we see a kind of new contradiction in that white consumers can purchase these recordings and claim it as their own. Anybody who has a dollar to pay can buy the 78 RPM recording. They can't actually obtain it and bring it into themselves. They can't embody it in the same way because of the legacy of white supremacy that dictates that you're white and I'm black and that's the way it is. So in some ways, this sounds like a story of liberation, of triumph. These black musical traditions that had been so controlled burst out and musically take over the world. There is a kind of triumphalism to it. On one hand, there's also a kind of tragedy that it also magnifies the sense of the tragic conditions under which this music was made in the first place. The very idea of black music as different necessitates ideas of race and uh, racial division. It also is that same sense of difference that helps to explain the legacies of slavery and the colonization of Africa. The sense that black bodies were not worth the same as white bodies indeed were seen as, in many cases, superfluous. They're just a superfluous class of labor. So to put this whole conversation in some larger context, what you're saying is we really should understand the historical roots of how music is made and how particularly what we have come to call black music has been racialized. 
what are the implications for how we listen to music today? Whether it's jazz or hip-hop, is there an ethics to that kind of listening? We can explore this matter in a number of ways. If we say, for example, listening to hip-hop or rap practices as they emerge in the 1980s, why does hip-hop emerge in this way? I would suggest that it is a kind of reordering of musical grammar. I would put it rejection of. Yeah. When Public Enemy came to into being, I I was startled by how radical this music was and loving radical music. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening attentively. I don't know that being identified as white or black or brown or other should inform a criticism. And by that I mean that what I'm describing are structures of race and belief systems that are grounded in a greater racial ideology that have informed and shaped the way we think about music. There's a a huge history behind any musical recording and a greater context from which it arises. But yeah, I think there are all sorts of ways in which we can think critically about how we listen. Ron Rodano is a musicologist at UW-Madison, and keep an eye out for his forthcoming book, Alive in the Sound, Black Music as Counter-History. Thinking Across Boundaries is a theme we'll keep exploring in future episodes of Ideas from Africa. It's a partnership with the Consortium of Humanities Centers and Institutes. I'm Anne Strainchamps. And I'm Steve Paulson. This hour was produced by Craig Ely and the staff of To the Best of Our Knowledge at Wisconsin Public Radio and PRX. Special thanks to Elizabeth Georges, Director of the Modern Art Museum at Addis Ababa University, and to all the organizers and participants in the Africa as Method conference. Thanks also to Sarah Geyer, Jason Rosamalski, Guillaume Rattel, and to the Mellon Foundation. To hear more ideas from Africa, visit us online at ttbook.org or chcinetwork.org slash ideas. <laughs> <laughs>